Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us that our thoughts, our words, and our deeds would glorify Jesus Christ, our Savior, from here to the ends of the earth. For his name's sake we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You trust me, don't you? May or may not be the best way to start a sermon, but you'll see why in just a minute. Um, I'm going to need some guys to be sermon illustrations this morning. So when I pick you out of the congregation, I'm just going to ask you to come to the front of the room and you'll see why. You did say you trust me. So let's see if we can grab four, Jonathan, Peter, Bill, Casey, Clive, Jim, Bill. I'm going to pick you. Come on. Or your dad, either one. I'll let y'all arm wrestle, and whoever wins doesn't have to come up here. Mike. Harry, come on. You've been with us for a long time. Can you come up for a minute? Well, that means I'm, I'm calling on you as well. Yeah, come on. Steve, you knew this day was coming. There, there's, you knew this day was coming, Tony. Nick. Blake. All right, who wants to do some quick math? How many guys are up here? 16. So I'm showing grace with 16 because how many apostles were there? And soon thereafter, and then 13, and then 15, and then six. you get the point. And the point I'm making here is that you guys have one job, one job. And that one job is to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. You got it? One job to take the gospel from here all the way around the world. One job. Can you handle it? You can be seated. Why am I doing that? There are two reasons that I'm doing that, and none of it is to pick on any man or woman individually. It's to make a point. The point is, this is how it really happened. That's exactly how it really happened. 12, 11, back up to 12, 13, 16, and the whole world, and the whole world, the whole world. That was the job that Jesus gave to his first 12 apostles. You saw them standing here. The other reason should be almost equally as obvious. This is an overwhelming task. This is an overwhelming task. Just think about how difficult it would be to get outside of Fort Worth. So we have a great big job and not many people. And I want us to imagine now perhaps the range of the emotions that the apostles might have felt. 
surely excitement in being called to the task, right? Jesus had called them to be his own apostles. Jesus had appointed them to be his ambassadors. Can you think of any higher calling than for God himself to say to you, I'm appointing you to be my witness to the ends of the earth? And joy, joy. What a thrill it must have been when they experienced success along the way. Think about the sermon that Peter preached at Pentecost and 3,000 souls, we are told, were converted by that sermon in that moment on that day. The story goes on from there in the book of Acts that demons are cast out like Jesus did. The sick are healed like Jesus did. Even the dead are raised like Jesus did. They're out there doing the stuff. But let's be honest. Surely these weren't the only emotions that they experienced. Yes, they spoke with boldness before the leaders who had crucified Christ, But would we really believe that they did that without any anxiety at all? And surely they must have felt some sense of frustration, even though the writers of the New Testament encourage us to count our sufferings as joy. Well, surely they didn't endure every single trial they ever faced by forcing a smile on their face. After all, and this is the point I'm really making, They were 12 human beings, just like us, just like you, just like me. And even though they displayed incredibly bold and courageous faith that inspires us today, they were also subject to the very same frailties of the flesh that you and I experience today. Now, on the one hand, we look back and we marvel. Twelve men, then more men and women and children and so on and so forth. They actually did that work. Their faith, their devotion, their sacrifice made Christianity the largest religion in the world today for good reason. Thanks be to God. The witnesses of the saints and the martyrs has served to help untold billions. That's billions with a B. Their witness has served to help untold billions of people experience the saving grace of Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, we look out and we see the very same things that they saw. The world, the flesh, and the devil are just as active now as they were then. And we Christians feel the same pain when people refuse to follow Jesus, just like they felt. I feel that pain. I know that you feel that pain because you tell me about it. We talk about it. It burdens us. It hurts us. It bothers us. So when the task seems too big and the laborers seem too few, what then do we do? I want to suggest to you this morning, we do exactly what the Bible tells us to do. And I want to give us four things to hang on this morning. Proofs, power, persecution, and prayer. Let's do that. Proofs, power, persecution, and prayer. Those are the four concepts I want us to hang on to this morning. Because in our reading from Acts, Luke tells us that Jesus, Jesus presented himself alive to his apostles. How? With many proofs. 
With many proofs, he presented himself alive. He appeared to them for 40 days and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And I want to say this, fellow Christians. What propelled the first disciples to love and good works in their day is one thing. It is the absolute conviction that they saw Jesus Christ alive and raised from the dead. That's what moved them into the mission field. And on the heels of that, the the single-minded dedication to telling everyone about it, come what may. After all the apostles saw Jesus raised from the dead, they, they couldn't help but speak about what they saw. It seems obvious, right? I mean, if you and I today saw someone get up out of the grave, raised from the dead, wouldn't we do exactly the same thing? How could we help but tell everyone we knew and maybe even everyone we saw, guess what? I just saw someone raised from the dead. That's what we're talking about. Now, that's certainly critical, but there's even more to it than that. You see, the Bible actually speaks about several people being raised from the dead, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And of course, these other resurrections do serve to tell us about the plans and the purposes of God. However, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is infinitely and eternally more significant, and here's why. Because with the resurrection of Jesus comes something else, and that is the forgiveness of our sins. For as Jesus said to the Pharisee in Mark chapter 2, if you can just put yourself there for a moment, you remember Mark chapter 2, the friends had another friend who was a paralytic. They cut a hole open in the ceiling, something like this, and they lowered him in to put him in front of Jesus. And the Pharisees were all spun up about it, and this is what Jesus said to them. Which one is easier to say? To tell this man to get up and walk or that his sins are forgiven, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, take up your mat, and walk. And that's exactly what the paralytic did. And so the resurrection of Jesus, working together with the forgiveness that comes through Jesus, it anticipates and it answers The question that we all have in our hearts, you know the question, what happens when we die? What happens when, like not theoretically what happens, what actually happens when I breathe, when you breathe, when we breathe our last breath on this earth, we gotta know what happens. Is this all there is or is there something else? And Jesus' resurrection tells us that there's something else. Not just because he rose from the dead and then walked the earth for 40 days, but because after rising from the dead and then walking the earth for 40 days, he ascended into heaven to begin his cosmic rule and reign, just as he said he would do. And in doing that, you know this, he promised to prepare a place for us that where he is, we may be also. But wait, as they say, there's more. While these proofs are sufficient to propel us into the mission field, Jesus also tells us that we will receive power. 
power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes, up, comes upon us to proclaim these proofs. Now, let's say this about the Holy Spirit. If you are a baptized Christian, guess what? You have the Holy Spirit. You are just like the apostles and you have the same Holy Spirit that Peter and James and John received 2,000 years ago to do the very same thing. Now, this is a mystery that I can't fully explain, but I do know this, and I think this would encourage and comfort us as well. I know that when I go out of these walls, I know that when you leave this church, when we go out to share the gospel with someone, even if you or I don't experience success in the way that we think we might or should experience success, this is what I know. I know that when I take a step to share the gospel with someone, that the power of God is at work in that conversation. And let me tell you how I know that and how we can know that because the Bible tells us. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword and it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, to the division of joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. In other words, my friends, when you and I share the gospel, when we talk about Jesus with another person, God promises this. He promises us that he's living in that conversation and that he's active in the things that are being said to accomplish his plans and his purposes from Isaiah chapter 55 verse 11. And this should be equally a comfort to us. The Bible tells us that when the word of God goes forth, it will not return empty. But this is what it will do it will accomplish that for which God purposed it. You never know what God purposes in a conversation that you're having about Jesus Christ. So the bottom line is this, and let's bring this into sharp focus. The results are up to God, but the obedience is up to us. We have to be willing to take that step of faith and trust that God will meet us there. Because as I've just told you, he already promises that he will. So, so here's, here's the hard part. Here's the persecution part. Some hear the good news and they shy away from obedience because of fear. Fear of persecution. Let's speak plainly about this. Fear of losing their social status. Fear of losing friendships. Fear of losing family relationships. Fear of losing job. Fear of losing money. Maybe fear of losing their own lives. If we want to boil it down to its most common denominator. But here's the thing about persecution. Persecution reminds us, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.12, persecution reminds us that we are fighting the good fight of faith. Persecution lets us know that we're in the game. L let me take this bold step and say, persecution reminds us that we are on the right side of history, to turn a phrase that people like to say a lot these days. Obedience, as it turns out, means to obey. 
So Jesus prepares his church for persecution with these words. He says, if the world hates you in John 15, 18, remember that it hated me first. So when people hate you, who are they hating? They're hating Jesus. We're just the messengers. And in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, do not fear the one who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. In John 12, 25, he says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, but anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's talking about persecution. And finally, these sharp words in Matthew 10, 32, 33, Jesus says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Now, that probably rattles you as much as it rattles me. But let's remember this, my friends. When we think about persecution, who was the first one that was persecuted? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. Jesus suffered these things for us, and so we ask the question, who else loved us the way Jesus loved us? Who else endured the beatings, the floggings, the whippings, the scourging? Who else was spit upon for you but Jesus? And finally, who laid down his life for you but Jesus? So when we think of the possibility that we might suffer persecution for the gospel, I think the playing field is clear and the question is this. How long will we try and love the world that so wickedly hates us and reject the God who loves us? Or will we rejoice in the God who laid down his life for us even as we are rejected by the wicked ways of this world? All of that takes us back to the beginning of what I said in our very last point. Yes, the job is big. It's huge. It's overwhelming. You can't think about it too much without feeling overwhelmed. Just look at what happened in Syria. What, 21,000 people? What do you even begin to do? What do you even begin to do to address that? And yes, the laborers may seem few. Yet we can remember the old adage a little humor intended here, that you still eat the elephant one bite at a time. You still eat the elephant one bite at a time. And finally, we can do the fourth thing I said, we can pray, we can pray. We can pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So that when you and I feel overwhelmed by the task that is at hand, or if and as we fear the persecution that might and one day surely will come, even as we do that task, we can ask God to raise up laborers who can do the things that we can't, even as we remain faithful to the things that we can do. All the while remembering this, I almost broke out in this hymn, Victory in Jesus. Victory in Jesus. There's victory in Jesus. And the promise that the God who called you to it is the same God who will see you through it.
for the glory of his name, the building up of his church, and the conversion of this world to the saving grace of Jesus Christ, especially on this World Mission Sunday.